All right, today on the podcast, we have Paul Cook. Paul Cook is a wealth of Canadian motorsports knowledge, history. He was the team manager of Comstock Racing. Comstock was Ford's effort in Canada, racing Cobras, racing GT40s. He went on to manage George Eaton's Can-Am effort of the Eaton family, uh, as well as others, uh, Formula Atlantic efforts and uh, Formula One efforts. So if you guys are into motorsports history, there's a ton of stuff here for you. Enjoy. Canada, and I took that shipping label off the car. So here, here, here we have here. This is a. This is. This is. Um, one McLaren Formula One racing chassis, blah blah blah, engine, blah blah blah, going to Paul Cook at Comstock racing canadian grand prix canadian grand prix how many people would have that's pretty cool for account of mclaren racing ltd air france yeah well how many people would have now the problem with that is the car came loose in the airplane <laughs> back and forth were there major repairs took a took the front off the car down to the bulkhead so i rebuilt everything from the bulkhead forward you had to do that. Yeah, because we had, we, of course, we had, yeah. And by, by the time Bruce couldn't send anybody over because they were all too tired and they had to sleep. So I said, okay. He said, well, I'll leave it to you because Bruce was a friend. So I said, he said, well, I'll leave it to your best judgment. So I just <laughs> put got, the finishing touches on well, the car. We got everything, got everything. Had to go to the master cylinders, got torn off. Every, everything from the bulkhead forward got torn off. Jeez. Fortunately, the body was not on the car yeah it was but anyway so there you go the, the the theme there is that there never was a major race team in canada right never yeah and there and, and there hasn't been one like that there's been some come and go but there was no i think there's a couple of race teams now but with all these racing guys i always like to start kind of at the beginning because everyone has their their different story on how they were introduced to racing, how they first experienced the racetrack or race cars or go-karts, whatever it may be. What was that for you? The first introduction into automotive competition was when I was in school and I knew I was going to do something when I came out of school, earn a living, and then and then do something from a application point of view high school or, or college I was just just I started in high school yeah. and and then I said okay what I want to do is do I'm going to try to get a first place trophy in every form of motorsport in Canada that's available to me well that was a lofty goal it was a lofty goal uh, 17 years later I had accumulated almost all of what I set out to do but that also, by that time came around, I was also heavy duty into professional motorsports as a vocation. So, right. so, so, but, but that, that, that's how it started. So what, but was there a first time you were taken to a racetrack or did you go to Mosport or something like that to watch the Formula One race, something like that, or even earlier than that, maybe? Yeah, I... <laughs> been around before Formula One in Canada. Um, 
being 87 years old right now, I have a long history back to when motorsport was what it was in the time. And um, what I, what was available to me at the time was drag racing. I had a 47 Ford and uh, I decided, well, let me try something here. So I went to, uh, I went to a drag, an event by, put on by Bemsey or something like that. At, I think it was at Edenvale. And so I was, uh, they told me all about classes and all I didn't understand. All I knew wanted to do is put the car in gear, open the throttle and go. That's all I knew. Yeah. Never mind all this other stuff. So anyway, I came away from that event feeling very happy, but missing two gears in the transmission. <laughs> so I drove, I drove home in high gear all the yeah, way. Yeah. <laughs> I then learned that there's a little more to it than that. So that, that started a whole process and of um, changing cars. And I would look at, I was in the advertising and sales promotion field. And I was able to earn a reasonably good living at that. And then, as you well know, you can make a small fortune in motorsport, provided you start with a large one. And um, that's 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 something I, I, I learned throughout my life. If you can't afford it, don't do it, because you're just going to disappoint yourself. So anyway, it just it all carried all the way through that I started racing cars and... The first car I raced as a sports car racer was with a friend who had an MGTC, and I had worked with him all year, and we're the last race down at uh, down at Harewood, and he said, well, he said, you drive the car. And I said, oh, I don't have a license. He said, they won't, they won't check. So it was the last race of the, of the weekend. So I said, he said, they just, he said, use my helmet. They, nobody looks at that sort of stuff. So I said, oh, well, well, yeah, which way do I go? Can we go that way? So anyway, I get in the car and the race started. And I found myself, these people aren't very fast. So I said, you know, they're all following this cow path. I think I'll go a different way. So I started altering the lines through the corners and ended up in first place. And so on the 12th lap of a 15-lap race, here I am, not knowing what I'm doing, except that I'm leading. And uh, going through uh, what they call big torque at the old uh, Harewood Acres. Where is that track? Where is it? Jarvis, Ontario. But it's not there anymore because they converted it into a refinery. Uh, and yeah. that refinery is gone now. Okay, well. Um, the, anyhow, um, the TC had 19-inch wheels. And going at the end of the turn, I was obviously abusing the 19-inch wheels and they decided to unlace themselves as I entered the corner. So the first thing that went was a left front wheel collapsed, and then the right front wheel collapsed after that. So I ended up off in the cornfield. And uh, so that was that was kind of interesting. So you were leading, but it ended in a... Yeah, it was sort of, uh, it was the end of the year, and, you know, it didn't hurt the car otherwise. And mm -hmm. so then I just carried on and with other cars and won championships and then 
rallying was a big sport. And I decided that in order to win a first place trophy in rallying, I couldn't be the driver. What I found is there were a lot of drivers, but there weren't very many navigators. Okay. So I went to self-schooling on how to be a good navigator, and I talked to a couple of the championship navigators, and they said, well, here's what you have to do. And I, so I did it. I liked learning. Okay? I liked learning from books. Mm. I probably in those days had every book written on motorsport. It didn't matter who wrote it, I would read it. Yeah. So, uh, or go to, go to the library. In fact, I think I still have a, library, a book from the library. I should take it back. <laughs> <laughs> the the uh, um, idea of winning was not driving, it was being on time. So that's what I focused on, and that's, I started, I, in quotation marks, yep. sorry, started winning races, winning rallies. Okay. So now as the navigator. wanted me as a navigator. Okay, got it. Got it? Yep. Because I, I could make them win. Sure. Okay, so that was pretty good. So I enjoyed that, and um, then um, Ford Motor Company was looking to do an event called the the BCITF British Columbia International Trade Fair Rally okay. from Montreal to Vancouver. And they were looking for someone to manage it. And they had seen my name in various places. So they called me and asked me if I would be the team manager for their international rally team. And I said, sure. I didn't know what it meant. So when I said yes, I didn't know what yes meant. But, you know, managing, a, but as a professional manager, uh, manage, right? uh, make a list and do it. Um, so um, the next thing you know, I have a bunch of cars shipped over to a Ford dealer. And so I start preparing them, but they're already prepared anyway because Ford in England prepared them. So the drivers came over. They said, well, we're missing a navigator. You're a navigator now, Paul. So not only did I manage the team, but I was also a navigator. And I na managed to navigate, and these well-known drivers, I managed to navigate my driver into rolling the car over in Dalmany, Saskatchewan. In the flattest part of the country. Yeah, that, that was, that was, <laughs> the, uh, uh, so that led to, that led to being asked to manage Comstock racing team. Right. Now explain for, for all the Canadian race fans out there and, you know, I, I guess American race fans out there, people don't realize, I think, how how big a deal Comstock racing was, how big an, a racing effort it was, and how important it was to that overall Ford racing effort of of the time. How did how did Comstock come about Comstock racing? Comstock racing team came about because Chuck Rathgeb, the owner of Comstock, and we need to put that in perspective, he was the, uh, the, the establishment jock in Canada. Mm -hmm. And 
in a lot of political parties, there's individuals who they're very good at finance, sure. or they're very good at international relationships. Or Chuck was very good at being a jock. Right. I've got I've got written here that Chuck was like, you know, a you know businessman, sportsman, climber, hunter, hot air balloon pilot, jet pilot, deep sea fisher. He was kind of like a Hemingway or some something like that, or a, his yeah exactly. But his race team was patently unsuccessful okay. because while Chuck was good at a lot of things, uh, the what he was best at was managing Comstock to make it an extraordinarily successful company. And they were an electrical company. They were they were in uh, a construction company. Their specialty was, at one point in time, um, and they became well-known when Ontario switched from 50-cycle to 60-cycle power. Comstock upgraded all electric motors in the province of Ontario, all of them. And what happened was he started racing cars by buying cars and finding someone to race them. Now, that combination, is, as you well know yourself, is pretty tricky. You have to get that right mm -hmm. to start off on the right foot. Well, then you don't know what the right foot is. It, you know, it's like, you know, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Yeah. So, um, Chuck went down many roads and spent a lot of money. Now, he also, in the company, bought Ford products for his trucks. Okay. So that created a link between Chuck Rathgeb, the sportsman, and Ford Motor Company, who at that stage of the game had an international mandate to establish a racing team in every country. Right. So um, Ford went to Comstock and said, we need to have a race team. And he said, okay. But they also said, but we're gonna tell you who the manager's gonna be. Oh, that was me. Because of your rally across Canada. Experience as a professional manager, my awareness of public relations, my awareness of, of uh, do it, do it right, do it properly, get on with it, and uh, blah, blah, blah. So uh, that came out of the advertising and sales promotion field. So, 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 so those credentials worked well because I understood why, why Ford was doing it. Ford, uh, the theory was by a lot of people, race on Sunday, sell on Monday. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. What the truth was was win on Sunday, sell on Monday. So they weren't in it to compete, they were in it to win. Because on Monday, they didn't want to have to say, oh, well, we ran our cars at a race and everybody had a good time. They, they wanted to prepare the ads that you won yeah. so that those ads were bing. 
put out on, on Monday. So anyhow, I, I understood that link and um, we started to we started to put things together. Well he had a he had a he had done a deal with a man by the name of Bill Sadler. And Bill Sadler from St. Catharines, Ontario built what I would call sports hot rod sports cars. He build a chassis and put the biggest engine wins, okay. Mm -hmm. But the problem was the biggest engine breaks all the other components, but he didn't figure that out too early. Anyway, while there was a lot of flurry and there was a lot of activity, there was a lot of money spent at Comstock, there were no wins, up to and including when Ford brought the uh, first Cobra, 289 Cobra, and they brought it up to, uh, uh, Comstock and Comstock started to manage it, started to run it, but they couldn't get it. They couldn't stop it from breaking, and let alone winning. And that was the f like the first yeah. Cobra, yeah. yeah. And it came up here. Far out of Shelby American, yeah. But it was their first one right. that Ken Miles had driven. Yep. So it came up to Canada. Did did he come up to test it at Mostport as well? Now there's there, 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 there's a lot of stories, uh, and I had gone to Los Angeles to learn all about Shelby American, and the first time I went down there, I was out in the shop. They just said, you know, go in the shop, you know, do 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 two hundred. Don't get in anybody's way and don't steal anything, okay? <laughs> and, and that, but I really introduced myself to everybody in the shop. And and uh, anyhow, there was an announcement on the uh, PA system with Mr. Paul Cook of Fort Canada. Please come to Mr. Shelby's office. So okay, fine. I go trotting off to the office, and he says, uh, "Have a seat." So I sitting where you are and he said uh, I've heard a lot about you and uh, I so I said well not nearly as much as I've heard about you so I said I'm absolutely tickled pink to, to be sitting here I'm very nervous mm. so uh, I don't know what to expect and he said well you can expect to be treated properly because that's the way we treat our partners and he said, uh, how long are you here for? I said, about 10 days. And he said, have you got a car? And I said, no, not yet. And he said, what do you do now? And he said, that's my car. It's out in the parking lot. You use it while you're here. Guess what it was? Cobra? 289? Uh, oh, yeah. But, but oh, oh, what a sweet vehicle. It excited me on one hand, and it scared me on another because it had straight pipes on it. And he had, they had told me, don't worry about that because nobody here will ever stop a Cobra. Uh, they'll, they might stop you to look at it, but they won't stop you because it's making noise. And I said, okay, fine. So what eventually I found out is that the car was very attractive to women because they went down to Hollywood with it one Saturday night. And I found out it was just really a magnet. And that was fun. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> but, but anyway, I was sorry to let it go when I took it back. I bet. 
but it, it, it was really good, really good. And um, no matter where you went, people, it was a precursor to the GT40 stories where that, that was your calling card, you know, Paul, Paul Cook. <laughs> GT40. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyhow, um, that started a good relationship between myself and Carol Shelby and, and also with Ken Miles and the rest of the crew. So, so Comstock uh, had the mandate from Ford to be the Canadian, you know, Ford representative racing team. And it started with Cobras or Mustangs? Cobras, right, early 60s. And not a whole ton of success at Comstock with the Cobras? Oh, yeah. See, what happened was they took it, they took it, to, uh, they took it up to the, the, the Comstock racing team was in the northeast corner of Kennedy Road and 401. And it was a huge facility there because Comstock at that point in time was manufacturing HVAC for Canadian mines. So when you, 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 you and that's where their expertise was. And, and you can imagine those heating apparatus vents were quarter inch steel. <laughs> you start making vents out of quarter-inch steel. And, and, and so anyway, the, the, the guys in the shop really liked the fact that we had taken over part of the shop they had where they overhauled all their portable welding equipment. They cut it in half. And when it was announced, and, and so this half of the building would be Comstock Racing Team and the other half would be the the repair shop for portable welders. And the people running the portable welder shop weren't very happy about it. But they, I said, well, you, you know what? Don't tell me. You call, I'll, here, I'll get Mr. Rathgib on the line. You can come play to him, and then then uh, you probably don't have to bring your lunch to work tomorrow. But anyway, I, we got uh, when Mr. Rathgib wanted something, then you, you really paid attention to it. So... Um, what transpired was they weren't doing well with the Cobra. So Jack Still at Ford Motor Company, who looked after all that kind of stuff, called me and said, what do we have to do? And I said, well, when we go up there to look at the car and to work on we have no cooperation whatsoever. So bring the, ha have the car brought down to uh, Wheat's Motors, which was a small family shop, car repair shop on Mount Pleasant Road, north of Eglinton Avenue. And that's where I met Epi. Epi Weeds. I got out of the advertising and sales promotion business, and as part of my 17 trophies I was looking for, I decided to become a mechanic. So I went to night school and blah, blah, blah. So then, and then to do that, I met Epi, and Epi said, why don't you come and work for us? And so I did that, and, and so that's where we got into, I helped him with his, he had a reputation for building, for building a, a, a Morris Minor. 
he built it and I helped him with it and we, we started beating all the 3.8 Jaguars that were around with a Morris Minor. And anyhow, then we got into building the Alpine. So I said, let's go to Roots Motors and see if we can get an Alpine from them. And then so I went with him and said, you, I said to, I said to Roots, you, you don't, with, your, with the new Roots product, the new Alpine, you don't want to be competing against yourself because people will pick up on that right away. So I said, why don't you, why don't you give us a car at Weeks' Motors and we'll compete against you. So this will be the big factory being competing against a dealer. I said, and the people like that kind of stuff. So anyway, they bought it. So they said, well, send the order in for the car. So I went through the order sheet and I took every, every accessory you could find. And so the car got delivered on a Thursday morning. And Epi and I went out to Roots Motors and brought it back. And by seven o'clock that night, we stripped the car. And then we, we, we started selling everything we took off it, and that's how we financed the racing for the year. <laughs> that's great. That's yeah. great. And this was happening simultaneously with Comstock or prior to? It was simultaneously because, interestingly enough, um, they sent the Cobra down. Well, we're building the Alpine. And because of every book I ever read about racing, including reading a lot of technical books, the mechan and, and going to night school, mechanical stuff came easily to me. So we were able to make a good Alpine. So, so the, the, the um, Comstock brought the Cobra down and all the bits and pieces, and they left it with us at Wheats. And then Epi and I would work on the Alpine from five o'clock to seven o'clock and then work on the Cobra from seven o'clock to whatever. And we just found so much wrong with it. And Epi started winning with it and, and we won almost every race with the car after that. And so then on the Canadian Championship weekend, the Cobra had to run in uh, the same race as the Alpine. So we wanted to win the championship for the Alpine class. So we said, well, I'll, I'll drive it. So now, so I drove the Alpine and Epi drove the Cobra in the same race. And uh, Roots thought, no, now we're, this will be the first time we beat them because we got Craig Fisher running our car, and he can beat Paul anytime. So, but 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 Paul had different ideas, and 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 so uh, uh, the only part of our Alpine that Craig Fisher saw were the two rear tail lights. So that's it. And wrapped up the championship. Wow. So you would would you say that the kind of turning point or the increase in performance for Comstock came from? Uh, going to Happy Wheats, having him as a driver and kind of you two going through the car? Yes. Okay. Epi was a natural mechanic. Mm. He 
he could fix anything without breaking it. And as you know, part being a being a being a being a mechanic almost suggests to some people that you 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 know your third third rate career. Well, no, not really, because even in this day and age in 2022, you go open the hood of your car and tell me what you think you see. And because you don't, you don't, you don't know what you're looking at. And uh, but a mechanic does. So you want to fix your own car? Go have at it. But uh, you, you best phone the rental car company because you'll need them. So anyhow, it's uh, so we had, we got everything working, and and then they said, okay, uh, as of January the first, Paul Cook is the team manager for Comstock and let everybody know that. So I showed up the first week of January at Comstock Racing Team in the northeast corner of Kennedy Road and 401 and there was nobody there. They all quit. They didn't want to be found out that they didn't know what they were doing. Mm. Mm. So rather than have that, I, I that's my opinion, and I think it bore truth. They 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 all got together and decided to leave, uh, so that their reputations weren't tarnished. Mm -hmm. They were all tarnished by the record. They just when people aren't very good at things, sometimes they find reasons why not to clear their own plate. Right? So anyway, so I said, okay, fine. That's the way you. That's the way it is. That's the way it is. You just save me a lot of trouble, because now I'm going to get people to come in. Uh, we we didn't. We had two, two or three of us on full time, and then we had a lot of volunteers. So I was very careful about the selection of volunteers. But people wanted to help us because Epi had a really good reputation. And I had a good reputation, and and people like to be associated with winners. They also like to be associated with underdogs. Mm -hmm. So if you're an underdog that's winning, people like you. It also attracted a lot of people to Wheats's Motors. Yeah. That worked out well from a sales point of view. So uh, anyhow, um, it all everything came together, and and and. Uh, um, was there support from Ford Canada or at, at, for you guys at that time? Like how involved was Ford as far as funding goes or giving you guys cars? Like how did that, how did that financially work out? It financially worked out that they asked me how much I wanted to manage the Comstock racing team. And I said, okay, this is what I want in year one, and for year two, I'll tell you at the start of year two. But I will not come to you during year one. Um, the other thing is, if you're going to give me a budget, then there must be someone in your organization that knows all about race teams and racing. And I don't think you do. So. Why don't we establish the budget in year one? 
It was a five-year program. Okay. And I said, you are telling me to race on Sunday. You're telling me to win on Sunday and sell on Monday. Then don't give me a budget. Let's just see how it goes, and I'm not going to take advantage of anything. So the one thing they did that made life a lot easier is they made they made Comstock Racing Team a Ford dealer. Okay. Okay. That meant I could place an order for parts at three o'clock in the afternoon, and I could go pick them up the next morning at eleven. Okay, in Rexdale. So uh, when we started, now remember we were doing. So the the, the, the w British Empire Motor Club Winter Rally was a huge event, huge event in Ontario in February, and it was Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Okay, and there was 100 entries, 120 entries, and we wanted to win that. So um, I think Comstock won it three times, once with the Anglias and. Twice with Cortinas, so we had uh, Anglias, and then we had Cortina A body, and then Cortina B body. Okay, mm -hmm. and so we won. At the same time, we were preparing those cars for the winter rally. We were also preparing cars for the Shell Four Thousand rally, and that was that was really interesting. And so, in the midst of all of this, we now have. Comstock Racing Team is now racing, they're now rallying in major events. Then they asked me to put together some private entries. So they would be sold, they would acquire cars and we would help them with what they should do to make them competitive and give them advice and that sort of stuff. And so the owners would come down on weekends and have a little seminar about how to do this, how to do that, how to do the other thing. So that worked out really, really well. Um, and then we would do the we would do the winter rally, and sometimes we'd get fresh cars, depending on how hard they were beaten up during the rally. But anyway, um, we were winning, and when you were winning, there wasn't much discussion about money. Right. Okay. Um, when I said we need to, we need vehicles to cart these cars around, I had ended up with two tractor trailers and an open one and a closed one, and then we built a shop in the front of the closed one, and that was the first of its kind, and now it was, as a matter of fact, it was only one of the only ones in North America at the time. Right, a full race trailer like, like today. Fledged race trailer. So Comstock was actually more than, it appeared to me more than it actually was. Okay. But it was winning. Right. And you know what? That's a good combination. So, um, but in the winter time, I would also go to the universities around Ontario and I would speak to the graduating engineers and speak to them about the development of the Mustangs and how it was done from an engineering point of view. And the one cute story that I told them, I said, did you ever, everybody in, is there anybody in here that doesn't like Mustangs? 
There wasn't a hand went up. I said, is there anybody here that doesn't like two-seater front seats in Mustangs? I said, did, did, did you ever notice that all the Mustangs were bench seats? Do you ever wonder why? Well, if you do the market research, and you, as Ford did, and they looked at who was buying these cars, they're in an age group that a lot of people were just beginning to understand life. And so bucket seats didn't fit that scenario, but the bench seat did. That's why, a simple reason, that's why Mustangs always had bench seats. Really? <laughs> that's comical. It is. It is. And, and, and so, there, so there was a, there were a lot of things to to do in Comstock. I'm jumping around a little bit. But one of the things uh, Ford wanted to win Le Mans, and so they selected various teams to work on the development of certain components. I became involved in the development of disc brakes. And I did that with a company called Kelsey Hayes. And uh, nobody knew our, our racing Mustangs all had Galaxy calipers. <laughs> but, yeah, but you know, you, you ever want people, because I knew what fit, because I knew the, I knew the car, and the, the engineer assigned to us from Kelsey Hayes knew what would work and what wouldn't work, okay? So it was, it was good to put, because it, the Galaxy had four pucks, okay. and they were large, okay? And so you could put a lot of, you could put a, you could put a lot of, a lot of pad on, right. on, on and, and, and so it just worked out really, really well. That's, that's why we were able to do a lot of races without having to replace stuff. And uh, so it was, it was, all that stuff worked out well. And um, so, so let me sorry interrupt you here. When did uh, so you guys started with the Cobras, then it went to the Mustangs, right? And you guys ordered an R model from 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 Shelby American. Here's what happens. We had Mustangs in the Shell Four Thousand Rally, and one of them was a six-cylinder car. A six-cylinder Mustang was a was a was a was a, a two sixty-inch car, and a lot of the Mustangs in those days were two two sixty cubic inches. And um, they then put their six-cylinder in it. So when we did the Shell Four Thousand, we had we got the engines built by a company called Dearborn Steel Tubing. And back in the day, Dearborn Steel Tubing did a lot of special racing work for Ford Motor Company. So they, they, uh, they, they, were, they, they were really good at helping us with, with some stuff. And, and, and the engine, the six-cylinder engine was more powerful than the 260. Mm. 
it's amazing. When they when they when they breathed on that six cylinder, it became more. And, and it, was, it was it was quite interesting to hear what it sounded when it started, when you started up. But anyhow, Epi drove that car, and um, during the course of the Shell 4000, you're not allowed to replace any components. Uh, the gearbox. We decided to change the oil on the on the on the transmission in okay. British Columbia. And we decided it was easier to take the transmission out with the oil in it and put and put it back with fresh oil. Sure. Okay. Sure. And so we we did that. We changed the we where we were at an overnight stop and we arranged for the car to go to a garage the next morning when they left the Park Fermi, and we were waiting there with everything laid out, and we changed that transmission in something like 27 minutes. Off it goes. Now, problem was, it was my fault. We got halfway to the end of the rally, and the transmission broke again. And when I got there, I found out why. In the replacement transmission we had, they had plastic plugs in everywhere, see. And I never changed the drain plug, so the plastic plug was still in the transmission. Yeah. And we never put the proper metal one in there, and that's why it melted and right. came out. So that was my fault. So you learn things. But anyway, what happened with that car is the rear, the rear chassis bent. And if you think of the hoop over the rear axle, uh, everything past center line dropped down about a quarter inch. So when we got the car back, I saw that and I said to Ford, and so Ford said, well, just get rid of the car, just scrap it. So I said, well, can I, can I, can I make a race car out of it? And they said, no, we don't race Mustangs. So that's why I said, oh, okay. So that's why I started building the first Mustang that ever raced. Out of that car? Out of that six-cylinder car. And that's so I got the whole pack. Oh, I got the whole 289 engine Weber carburetors. I got that whole package. I got the T6 transmission with the aluminum box and the tail shaft and all that. And then I got the rear axle and it was a beautiful car, beautiful, beautiful car. Um, and it was scheduled to be, to run at Montreal. And then Ford came and said, we want it in the CNE show first. Oh, okay. Canadian National Exhibition. Mm -hmm. So they said, we're building a stand, we're going to put the car up in the stand, and we're going to feature it. And I said, well, just a minute now. We built this as a race car, not a show car. So I said, you know, well, I, I'll work with you on it, but you can have it. I need to take it out of there on the Wednesday. And anyway, so I have to go test it, and I have to take it to Montreal. We have to be able to test it. We have to, so I got to test it Thursday and be in Montreal, be in Trombla for on Friday afternoon. Anyway, so um, 
I never tested the car. I just built it at the shop and take, took it down to the CNE, put it up in the stand. So on a Wednesday, we took it down in the morning, took it out to Mosport, and I'm testing it for the first time, and I do 10 laps or so, and then come in, tighten everything, and check everything over, and blah, 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 and then go, go a little quicker, blah, blah, blah. Then I decide, well, I'm going to... Um, you know, to give it. So I uh, went up the back straight pretty quickly. And, you know, you're dealing with almost 400 horsepower with a pretty lightweight car. That That's... You're hauling the mail. Yeah, yeah, you're hauling mail. And so anyway, I come up over the top of the hill then at Mosport. And this was before they took the top off. The real top of the hill. And all of a sudden, everything went black. I thought, expletive deleted. And what had happened is when we put the car into the show, I left the headliner in it so because people were looking up. So it was on stand, so they could see inside the car. And so a bare, naked roof it's not very attractive, so I left the headliner in the car. Sure. Okay. And as soon as I got out, and I had the windows open in the car, and got up to the top of the hill, and the headliner came down, and the bows, the bows on the headliners came down, and then the headliner came down over the top right of over my your, right over your eyes, right over, right, right over, right over my helmet, and we're just, I was just, I just crested the top of the hill. And the car was coming down, and I said, "Okay, what are you going to do, Paul?" And I, I just, I just remembered the corner. Mm -hmm. Okay, I just remembered the corner, so I braked as hard as I could and turned the wheel a little bit, and then there's, I can hear the gravel. Yeah, so you're off the track. I'm off the track now, and then the car stops. I'm about a foot from the tire barrier. Holy cow. So I pull this headliner down, put the car in reverse, and go in the pit. And, but it could have been, that could have been a... But anyway, then... Par with, like, a steering wheel coming off or something like that. Well, you can imagine, you can imagine from your own driving activities, of all of a sudden you can't see anything. In, 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 in the wintertime, they would call it a whiteout. In the summertime, they'd call it a blackout. But, but it was a, a very interesting situation as a driver. And um, That's a good story. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. It was scary, but it was, but it was, it was kind of interesting. You, you created or, or fabbed up the first Mustang race car because Ford, Ford wasn't racing Mustangs at the time. Alan Mann had was playing with rally cars over in Europe mm. and uh, uh, he tried to pawn them off as race cars mm. but then Detroit said but they couldn't win anything and Detroit said no we're not going to race domestic product okay. so I went down to uh, so I went to see Jack Still and Jack says I can't do anything about it how did the, how did the, you guys, like, uh, you know, in my mind, the famous Comstock R model, when did, when did that happen? The R was on order. 
And halfway through the year, the car got delivered. Okay. So that's why I ended up driving the Mustang, because Epi was driving the, G, the, the, the 350R, right. and I had to, I drove the, I drove the Mustang, first of all, to make sure it was working properly, and then to be able to talk to people like uh, Craig Fisher, who drove for us, this is how you drive this car. Mm. I'm not telling you how to drive, but I'm telling you, this is what this car likes, and this is what it doesn't like. Mm. So that, 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 that shortened the path to success. So Craig was pretty good at that, and uh, so that worked out really, really well. But uh, the first race in, in Quebec, we won it. I won that. That was on the short circuit before the long, long circuit was made, and I was able to take the vice president of Ford around in Quebec. Then two weeks later, uh, I took the president of Ford around Mosport, and there. You know, they're hanging on to the checkered flag and, you know, you couldn't pry it from their hands and so I had to give it to them at the end. Yeah. So, um, so I guess if you could characterize the nature of the race team is Ford, Jack, uh, Chuck Rathgeb was a really good man in letting us do what we needed to do. Ford was an extremely good partner in making sure we had the assets to, to get the job done. And the team was really, really good at presenting all this stuff uh, in, in, in a positive way. Um, I insisted everything be clean all the time. Mm. And that was one of the things that was wrong with Comstock initially when I first, first time I Everything was dirty, you know. You know, dirty car. What does that tell you? Okay. So, but I insisted everything is clean. If you, 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 if if you want to abide by that, you're welcome. If you don't, then I'm sorry, you're you're not welcome here. So that worked out. Everything had to be clean all the time, uh, and so it was a really, really good package. And when Ford decided to get out of it, we. Not internationally, we stayed on for another two years. But let me go to uh, the GT40s because you guys, you guys were sent. Uh, you bought GT40s. You were sent. You were sent road cars as well as like PR cars. I hear stories of you ripping around the 401 in a PR car from you know London to Montreal in three hours, stuff like that. What was the deal with the GT40s? Because that was. To me, the pinnacle of of Ford's racing effort. Okay, in order to comply with the rules and regulations of the FIA, to be in a class, you had to build fifty cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, that homologation. Yeah, for homologation purposes. Um, we at Comstock wanted two cars, race cars. Now, I went over to England when they were being built at Ford Advanced Vehicles. And the man that ran Ford Advanced Vehicles, his name was John Wire. And 
John and I got along really, really well. One of the reasons was that his wife was from Calgary. Okay. So uh, he invited me to stay at his home uh, when I was over there. And of course, his wife wanted to talk about Canada, wanted to talk about Calgary, wanted to talk about anything Canadian, okay? And so the old story, happy wife, happy life, fitted with John. So I could get, sorry, Comstock could get pretty much what they wanted, okay? So um, somehow I ended up with four cars. I ended up with two race cars. Then I ended up with a silver road car. And I ended up with a brown road car. The brown road car was given to me to use as my daily driver. <laughs> it's quite the daily driver. Yeah. And so they said you're out and about and you're 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 you know you're you're well known and you're you you go to car clubs and you you talk about our activity, blah blah blah. So you 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 take that car and use it as your road car. The silver car, I managed that in terms of where it went and how it got there, and blah blah blah. So there's a lot of stories about that, but I can trash those stories because I can show you pictures of the silver car when I was delivering it to where it was going to be used for whatever it was going to be used for. Right. And then I would I would be there and I'd do, I would say, no, 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 no. You don't do that. You do this. And if you don't like it, then we'll call this off. So I run the car, you don't. So then they said, well, Whenever the car is being driven, it has to be driven by a union driver. And I said, well, in that case, you're not getting the car. A union driver? Like a Ford? Oh, yeah. It had, it had to be, uh, if there were, it was presented to me that driving a car in a movie was... A union job. So driving a car in a commercials was then deemed to be the equivalent of driving a car in a movie, and so you had to have you had to have a union driver. Mm, I, I can tell you a, a separate story about running a Formula Series at Toronto Indy Track when they decided that. Uh, the cars had to be driven by union drivers, and in fact, they did, and made a mess of everything. But that's another story. Anyhow, uh, so I, I simply said to the people that were doing the work, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to, we're not going to invest in these cars and have someone come in and don't know what they're doing, and that's that's just not going to happen. So uh, if we, had, we need to call the lawyers, we'll call the lawyers. I mean, that's okay. So we never. So that never ended up being a problem. But that, but that meant that we could use our own people. That's why you saw in some of the commercials are really nice-looking guys with nice-looking 
Czechs doing this stuff, okay, and uh, and it, it, I, I enjoyed helping out with that stuff. It was I got a kick out of it. So it was, that stuff was a lot of fun. But yes, we did do uh, a chap by the name of Don Newlands, who was uh, a, a photojournalist for Toronto Star. He was a friend of mine, and I also had a friend who came up to Comstock all the time that ran a jewelry company and he had a jewelry store at Avenue Road and Bay Street. Nothing I could afford. But anyway, he was a friendly guy and we became uh, a little more than acquaintances but not really friends so it just worked out nicely for us to be, to be, to be friendly. Anyway, um, he said to me, I have a friend in Montreal that owns a restaurant. Is there any possibility that you could bring the GT40? Is there any possibility that I could take the GT40 to Montreal? I said, I said to, uh, no, there's no possibility whatsoever. <laughs> he said, well, but, but is there any way to do it? So to make a long story short, Don Newlands and I took the car and I think we got to Montreal under four hours. That's pretty quick. Pretty quick. Now they had they had prepared downtown on on uh, Crescent Crescent Street. The restaurant was there. They prepared a ramp. Okay, GT40. for the GT40. So we got there, and it came up, and they they had taken two or three tables away, and they put the car in there anyway. It was. It, 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 you know, it was an auto orgasm. The whole that whole evening was just just people fell in love with the GT40, and and and, and, and I had to go start it once an hour, and right. and so then and then, but the announce the DJ would say, okay, the, the next the next the next sound of the GT40 will be at such and such a time. <laughs> We, we had a lot of fun. It's great. So you drove it just for dinner in Montreal? Montreal, yeah. And, and I think like people who haven't been around or put their hands on one of those street cars, they were, they were just a race car. It was a race car with turn signals, if you want to. But, but remember, some of them, or things, a few things were done a little differently, and, and, and depending on what what the end use of the car was going to be, but that's why John Wire was able to manipulate stuff over in the factory, and it was uh, it was pretty interesting. But um, I enjoyed having the car, and uh, I enjoyed driving it around. And I would go to a meeting in Detroit. I'd take the GT40. Okay, you put it, you've probably put more miles on a GT40 than a lot of people, at least on the street. Oh, absolutely. Maybe than anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I go back and forth to Detroit, and it was, uh, it was. Uh, I never exceeded speed limit. Of course, I'm telling of course. you. Of course, of course, I, of course, I know. <laughs> and um, the car was completely comfortable, completely comfortable. It was pure pleasure, pure pleasure to drive it, and if you're 
you know, all of a sudden you, you realize that you're a, you're, you're a motorhead and you never knew it. Okay, so a car like that awakens parts of your brain that you never knew you had in terms of thinking about cars and thinking about driving. But if you all of a sudden decide that you want to take that car up through the gears of the ZF transmission, be prepared because that puppy would just move along really, really well. And uh, also, if you wanted to stop, it would, it would stop. And and so it was it was it was delightful to do that. Now, the brown car didn't have air conditioning, so it was it was pretty hot in there. And the race car had better ventilation for that, but. Yeah, it was uh, just a whole world of whole world of, you know. Here's this, here's this guy that was brought up in downtown Toronto. And I, I I lived on Asquith Avenue, that was Bay of Bloor, okay. and I grew up selling papers, and they were three cents each at the time, and I had my own paper route and all that sort of stuff, and I would deliver. I would deliver flowers on the weekend, and I made use of the bicycle I had to deliver flowers, to deliver meat, to deliver whatever you want, and earn money, and do 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 some things. When all of a sudden you find yourself sitting in a car in a GT40 in London, Ontario, headed 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 home from a meeting in Detroit, it's a whole other world, mm -hmm. just a whole other world, and. And, uh, and I really enjoyed it, really enjoyed it. And um, then the brown car, we took it with us. We had two open trailers when we traveled across Canada. And the, uh, I didn't want to take the big tractor trailers. So we had, we had two open cars, we had good coverage for the cars. And so we would, we would go and uh, put on a demonstration at the same time. We raced, and I would take people out in the brown car, and Epi would, of course, look after the the white car, the race car. And then, then, um, then I had a contest with in 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 Westwood with Roger Ward in an Indy car, and it was touted as the Indy car versus the sports car. Okay. And so they're going to do this five five or ten lap race on Saturday and want to get on Sunday. So Roger Ward was a pretty sharp guy. I didn't know what this was going to turn out to be, so I was really, really cautious about it. Anyway, he got in front of me uh, on Saturday, and then all of a sudden I'm getting a face full of methanol exhaust. Right. And boy, oh boy, if you want to cry quickly, just, just get methanol in your eye. Yeah, it'll empty your face out. Oh, and he knew it, right? Yeah. He knew it. So he stayed, and I had to, I had to really back off to, to, to get. On Sunday, different deal because I put all the effort into getting it off the line. And so I got in front of him and... I could down there lap him with the GT40, but really? but we had to put uh, we had to make a show out of it. So, but he was a good GT40 versus IndyCar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. At Westwood. Cool. And um, you know the other the other kind of interesting things with Mustang. The year we won 
we ran Anglias and we ran Mustangs and we won. And on Sunday, um, we decided, and we, we finished the race on, uh, the rally on Thursday, and then we decided that I would race the car at Westwood on Saturday and Sunday. The highly touted Mustang community out in Westwood were just laughing at the rally car. So I had a friend, and I borrowed a set of wheels and old wheels and tires from him, and and um, and then uh, the 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 gearing for the gearing was pretty good. Uh, so anyway, on and and I just I just kind of took it easy in in practice and qualifying. So I think I I qualified fourth because that's what I wanted to do, and uh, everyone was. The press was saying, look at all these specialized race cars, and yet Ford brings this car that just did 4,287 miles or kilometers, whatever miles, and, and, and it's out there, and they haven't done anything to it, and it, 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 it's competing against these special built race car cars. So, Anyway, it was uh, interesting because on the Sunday on the race, I got up to second, and they were bound and determined I was not going to. I could get. I could. I could have won the race, except if someone pushes you off, there's nothing you can do about it. So the car went off, and I just left it there. And but it was, it was kind of fun to to take the rally car that had run 4,200 miles and. And, and 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 take it take it on a road race immediately, and 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 the Anglia that had won was driven by Henry Taylor. Uh, in that race, he on the Sunday he finished seventh, I think, with the Anglia around Westwood, and Henry Taylor was the president of Ford Racing in England. But he he had uh, he had he was the Formula One driver, really. Yeah. Okay. And uh, and what he did after after his Formula One career, he 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 he, he took on the job as managing as competitions manager for Ford of England. Mm. When I went over there, Ford had the compound at the uh, at the airport. Right. And that's where they kept cars for people coming and going and they had an office there with a an individual that would check you out and check you in game okay? would have the keys so so uh, I made a reservation for a car and so I get over there on how did I get over there I think I got over there at night so I took a day flight I think you could fly during the day or you could fly during the night, I think. Cause I was over there all the time. And anyway, I get over there, so I, I go to the booth, and and I, I get the keys to this car, and I go to get the car and look at the license plate. It's a uh, Cortina. Uh, okay. So I... <laughs> looks funny. car looks funny. So I get in the car, I got the keys started... I shut it off immediately. There's something wrong with this car. So I 
popped the hood and, and had a look, and they'd put a Formula One engine in it. <laughs> Holy cow. So, Eddie. Sounds pretty. You fired it up and drove it after that, I'm sure. Yeah, I had to take it. I had to take it to, to, uh, uh, for, to, to the Ford Competitions Department, which was at an airport east of London. And drive, but had to drive through London to get there. But I was surprised how docile it was. But was it noisy? It was really noisy. I bet it was. Fly. I bet. It would just fly. So that's great. So, so Comstock Racing comes to an end for for you or in general? Period. Period. Yeah. They're done racing. They're done racing. And now. You're you're hooked. You are you are in the motorsports industry for life. You're going to continue to do something in racing. George Eaton hired me. Right. And who's George Eaton? George Eaton's family owned the T. Eaton Company Limited at the time, the the the, the, the biggest general merchandise operation in Canada. Um, Fifty. 50,000 employees across Canada and whack of stores and anyhow so he 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 hired me and he had a race team and before that at Comstock I had prepared a car for him which was the Alpine that Epi and I had used when we were finished with that, George Eaton bought it. Mm -hmm. And so he campaigned that and he kept it at Comstock. We looked after it for him. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, uh, the second year, we ordered a 427 Cobra for him. And we, we got that and that was a pretty interesting car. I bet. That was the, the, that was the Holman and Moody 427. Okay, so it was, it was a, it, it 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 got the job done, but it got the job done very easily. Mm. So George was very successful in it, uh, and and he won the car, never missed a beat all all year. Then then I then I went to work for him uh, when Comstock shut down, and I bought I ordered a, a Mark III McLaren for him. And went over to England and finished that and brought it back. And, and that was to race Can-Am. That was to race Can-Am, and I put in a Gurney Westlake engine. That's a real race car. Oh yeah, and I had gone over to, I had gone over to England to Westlake's, and uh, there were some problems. And all my experience with small engines, I could see what some of the problems were. So I worked with Harry Westlake and saying, instead of doing this, why don't you take a look at doing this? He said, well, that's really interesting. And I said, yeah. And I said, you know, blah, 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 blah. So uh, I was helpful to him, and so he was helpful to me. Okay. And so we got the engine to work. Gurney couldn't get it to work. Hmm. After we got the engine working, Gurney went ahead with it. Right. And, and so it was really a lot of fun, that engine. That's the engine we took to Mexico. And when... We were going to Mexico with that car. Uh, so there was a Can-Am race in Mexico? Yeah. And what year was this, roughly?
Late 60s or early 70s? 70s. Okay. Anyhow, I, I went to the University of Toronto Engineering Department and I said, I'm going to give you guys a problem and you figure it out. I said, we're going to take this engine. And I said, yeah, I'll, be, I'll lend you the engine. And it's got these Weber carburetors. Mm. And I want you to tell me what chokes I should be using and what jets I should be using. Right. Because we're going to go from sea level to 7,200 feet. Right. So when, when we got to, uh, when we got to, uh, we got to Mexico and George gets in the car, we, we were right up there in the top six and no one could understand why. But we just got the engine breathing at, at 7,000 feet. And those are notoriously tough to tune. Oh, yeah. And so I, 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 I had a, um, by that time I knew a lot about Weber's because we had them all over the place. And right. We had them and the, we had the Weber's and I had, we had Weber's in the, in the Alpine. Sunbeam Alpine, we had put Weber's on that. We had Weber's on, uh, on pretty much all the race cars I ever had anything to do with because that was the way to go because you could tune them, but you had to know how. Right. And uh, there was a lot of stuff available from Weber to help you do that if you opened your eyes, okay? open your ears. And they were very helpful. And, and so that was pretty good. And plus the guys down at uh, Shelby guys were really helpful on Weber stuff. So, so that was, yeah, that was really good. Nobody could figure out why we were so fast in, in Mexico. And, and so George was the team owner and the driver. So he was, a, he was a gentleman racer, but he took it very seriously and he had unlimited funding. Yeah, it, well, there was no budget. And because it was, well, it was a lot of money for a race team. It wasn't a lot of money for Eaton's. But uh, George is still with us. And, and so there's a couple of stories that I just better leave alone. But um, <laughs> George is a good, yeah, I like George. He's a good man. But But one of the funny ones was he had a girlfriend that was, Oh, she could be on the front page of Vogue. She was extraordinarily beautiful. And she was Swedish and had that Swedish blonde hair. She lived in North Toronto, not too far from where I lived. Anyway, anyway we were going to go to Elkhart Lake and George came to me and he said, I want you to do something for me. And I said, okay. He said, I have to take you to my girlfriend's, to meet my girlfriend's parents. And you're going to tell them that you're going to chaperone us at Elkhart Lake. Okay. And I said, okay. So we went to dinner at her parents' house and, um, the whole family was really attractive people. I mean, and, and, and anyway, I said I would be the chaperone, and um, they, they they said okay. So now I've made a commitment to them, and we get to Elkhart Lake, and uh, so we're checking in, and. Uh, 
I said, George, it's two rooms. And he said, well, why? And I said, because I'm chaperoning you. And so we, the whole weekend we had a lot of fun with that. And I said, I'm gonna, come, I'm gonna come to that second room during the night and make sure that you're not in it, okay? <laughs> So we had we just had we just had some fun that way, and, and, and it was good. So George was he was a good guy, but <clears throat> then we um, then we got the McLaren twelve Mark twelve, which was a car that McLarens never drew, never never raced. It was a it was a for sale car by Trojan Cars, and it is a pig. Terrible, terrible car, and it was overheating. And anyhow, we decided to take the car. George wanted to take the car to Montreal because his uncle was president of United Technologies, and they're the people that that, that supplied the turbine engine for. And was it Andretti at 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 Indy? At Indy. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so, help me God, you could. Pick that engine up with one hand. Wow. Just pick it up with one hand. And so we decided when we went to Montreal, he decided to take it. We go down and see what it's like. So we'd go down to St. Lawrence and they had a boat with that one of these turbines in it. And I, whoo, whoo, whoo. So they brought in, they brought in their their their, their boat captain and so here we are in this little boat with one of these little engines in there. Why did it fly? Oh my gosh! But anyway, they came and they came and did some some studies at Mosport on how to cool the car, and they worked actually. They, you know, they know they know about that stuff, so that works out. But then, then George wanted to go to England. He wanted to go to Europe to race, and wanted me to go with him. And I said, No, I don't want to go to Europe. Why? I don't want to go to Europe because we can't win. Mm. And my success as an individual is based on winning, mm. not on competing. So with all due respect, George, I, I, I'm not going to do it. He said, well, I'll have, he said, well in that case, I'll have, to, I'll have to fire you. And I said, well, so be it. So he said, but he said the next morning he came and, 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 and with, a, with a lawyer and he fired me. Okay, um, a bit extreme. He says, okay. Anyhow, two days later, I, I'm working for, I did a deal with Roger McCaig. And the McCaig brothers had uh, the trans, Tramac Transportation. What was it? Tramac Transportation. Yep. And what was that company? The largest bulk hauler in Canada. So there's a theme here where you're working for guys with no budget. Yeah. But That's did I have a? Did I have a, a? Did I have a formula? Yeah. Because when 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 at Comstock, the the McCaig brothers were out in Regina. They bought a they bought a Lotus Twenty Three. And another uh, similar car. What was it? I forget who made it. Anyway, uh, they couldn't get them to work. So during one of the 
events at Mosport, they came, brought the car down, and Ford said to me, "This is a, look after this fellow because he's he's a big fleet buyer." Mm. So I he brought the car in, and I said, "Okay, well, let's have a look at it." So take the body off, and as soon as he took the body off, and I just eyeballed the car, and I said, "Well, well, okay, I'll give you a list of things to do," and. Um, Anyway, uh, I, we gave him a bit of a hand to do a couple of things. He took the car out to Morrisport, and he said the car never, he said it's never worked as well as that. And all, all I did, frankly, was straighten all the wheels. And get <laughs> well, that helps. Pointing in the same direction. <laughs> and get the right eyes to the shock set properly, and get the air pressure set properly, and balance the tires of all things. Well, that helps as well. And so then, and it was really good. So that, that go fast forward to me not having a job with George, and I knew that was going to happen, so I'd already been talking to McKay, who was running Ken Am cars at the time. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 I took over his program. His program. Now, I want to jump back because I've, I glossed over it, and there's a significant story when you guys are running the GT40s in 66, there's a big wreck at Sebring. Like a, a pretty major crash. Yeah. And, you know, you see pictures online, like, it, it's it's bad. Can you tell can you tell the story from that weekend? Absolutely. Um, because people said that Ford was masking what happened at Sebring. But here's what happened at Sebring. Um, running at Sebring is like running six two-hour races. and You just set it up to, to do it, and you have the right, you have the people, and you have the parts, and you have the tooling, and there's special tooling for, for running those races, and you know, special devices to get the knockoffs off and special devices to get the calipers back in where so you can put new pads in and, and how to do that uh, at night and how to do that when it's really, really hot. And, you, you know, you kind of, if, if you know your craft, you, you can work those things out. Plus, we had the resources at Shelby to be able to talk to them about uh, how do you do this, how do you do that, how do you do the other thing. So also, so John John Wire provided a uh, uh, a, a man to 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 come and help us, and um, he was really 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 helpful. So we were prepared to do all this. So I forget when we're in about. Uh, Somewhere around the fourth hour, and Epi had come in, and and or, or the who was driving with Epi? Anyway, Epi's co-driver brought the car in, and we put new tires on it and filled it with fuel, and uh, Epi took off. Uh, followed not too long afterwards by Bob Ma by Bob McLean coming in to get 
breaks. So that would be four hours later. Anyway, McLean came into the pit. We jacked the car up. We put new pads in. Uh, we got the pads back to the rotors and got everything working. Um, new tires, everything's fine. Fuel, and Bob takes off. And if you don't see bring, it's quite a long way to turn one. Anyway, as, as Bob is going down the pit lane and he just gets to the end of the pit wall, uh, Epi goes by on Bob's left so Bob can see him. So we had said to we had said to the drivers when you, when, when when we do a tire change and we do brake change take two laps to get things working like just back off by 10% or something get everything just get everything set before you, before you put the hammer down anyway bob took off right away to chase epi and gets to turn 2 loses control uh, goes sliding across the grass hits a uh, utility pole which is there um, the on the right hand side the bladder is full of fuel mm. the, the bladder uh, bursts out the front and catches on fire the car burns and um, Bob dies now, there's a picture of the front nose. They say the wheel, oh, the wheel came off. Because you see, you see, you see the wheel going through. Well, <laughs> in the front of the GT40, oh, in the regulations for the GT40, you have to have a spare tire. And it has to go in the front. And it's held down by its straps so and it's just an ordinary wire wheel okay so the the wheel that people can see in the fish they they don't know about wire wheels they don't know about solid wheels it's the wheels we had were halibrands right mm -hmm. so they then they start making stories up about the wheel came off because they weren't tightened well, there's the wreck. It's still got four, four, four wheels on it. I mean, anyway, then, then that was okay. We see our way through that initially. So when we get the uh, get um, um, we get the car stripped of all the stuff that maybe of some value and I I said well what are we going to do it and we don't want to carry this hulk back to Canada so I called uh, Canada Customs and Canada Customs said if you're going to if you're going to destroy it then then get a letter from the local police department explaining what get them get them to do a, a letter saying what happened to it so uh, there was a they were building um, um a new overpass. So I talked to the contractor, and the contractor said, "Well, this is this is what we're doing." And the policeman's there, the sergeant was there. So I said, "Well, can we take this and put it in in where you're 
re rearranging all the earth around this cloverleaf. Hey, yeah, no problem at all. This is it won't interfere with anything. No, 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 it won't interfere with anything. So that's what we did. We buried that part, and we brought we brought uh, a bunch of other stuff home with us. Um, you buried the chassis. The chassis, and then, then, then a number of years later, the stories come out. Well, they found the car. Okay, oh, bullshit! Like, you didn't find a car. Well, we have, we have the uh, serial plate. Yeah, sure you do. Um, and and then they could, everybody wanted me to tell them. You probably know this story. You can't turn around after you've had a number of successful cars without someone wanting you to verify something so that they can enhance the value of their whatever it is they want to sell. But anyway, the story of the GT40 is very simple. The car crashed. The spare wheel came off, came off the chassis and went through the air, and that's what people saw. Uh, why did why did Bob die? Bob died because he he burned to death. Why did he burn to death? Because the car caught fire because it hit a utility pole that shouldn't have been there. The fact is it was, but that was one of two or three fatalities at that event. Right, right, which weren't uncommon in those days. Common, and, and, and so that was that. It 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 really. It, uh, I took it hard. It was very very difficult for me. Uh, it set me on a path to of, 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 of becoming very concerned with safety, mm. and I carried that on through through the rest of my career. If we, and if we do jump ahead a little bit, how how does that jump happen for you from being involved in specific race teams to now being involved in sanctioning bodies, bodies and safeties and, and specific events? What happened was... Uh, we're, we're running with Roger McCaig. And one of the things on all the, because we did Daytona and Sebring with the Lola T120. And we're at Daytona and the car was really running while we find ourselves in third place with the, 1600 cc car i mean that was how do you explain that mm. when you're passing ferrari right left and center how do you explain that it's hard to explain so anyway the announcer comes along and they say and then we have and in third position is the lola t210 of roger mckaig from Drinkwater, saskatchewan and then he says, drink water, Saskatchewan, where the hell is that, the announcer says. And then a little while, a little while later he comes on and he, he says, oh, here's this Lola up front again, and now it's uh, being driven by the co-driver Morris McKay from Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. And whoever heard, what's a Moose Jaw? <laughs> so it was, it read, drink water, Saskatchewan, Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. There was a lot of fun with those names, sure. okay, around, around that, and. But but anyhow, um, the we were running, th we were third or fourth or fifth or something like that. Anyway, the car came in and we did all the changes. Went to start, wouldn't start, so uh, the starter wouldn't work. And so the starter was a weak part of the car. We couldn't change it. But I had another starter sitting there. All you couldn't replace the starter, mm. but I had a 
starter sitting there, and I took the starter off. Well, I had the starter I had sitting there was all apart. So then I took the starter off the car, which is really hot, put it up on the bench, and then took all the parts off this one, put them up here, took all the replacement parts, put them down here, reassembled it, got underneath, put it on the car. 17 minutes we changed, uh, so we were there, but we dropped down to, I think, 11th place or something like that. But that was, that was those were moments of, to, 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 you know, to, to build a, a 1.7 liter car and be surrounded by Ferraris and Alfa Romeos and, and, and things like that, it was really satisfying. Mm. Anyhow, we're doing, issue was I would pre-sell all the cars that we had. All the race cars. Yeah. Yep. When, when, when we order, the car we're driving now is already sold while we're driving. Right. And then, so we'll do the, the, it'll, it'll, it'll be picked up at the end of the season. And that makes life a whole lot easier. So we got all that working fine. Anyhow, uh, we're at uh, Roger. Roger had developed cancer, kidneys. But I was, you know, I, I knew about it. Roger knew about it, of course, and his wife knew about it. We're the only, both the only people that knew about it. So anyway, typically we would take the car to the race, and Roger would arrive, and he'd race it. Blah 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 blah. And I had. I had to talk to the doctor, and I talked to the pharmacist, and I talked about talked to them about the the, the the pills and the and the and the pain and the what he should take and when he should take it and how he should take it. So I managed his I, I did his pain management for him throughout the weekend. So, so Roger and I became really good friends. And and when you're helping people like that, there's a kinsmanship that's just created. So it was pretty, it was really good. But anyway, we're at uh, Laguna Seca. I go out to the airport to pick up Roger. No Roger. So I call. No answer. Anyway, Roger's in the hospital having a kidney operation. So uh, I've Finally, talked. I talked to him, and I said, "Well, we'll come home." He said, "No." He said, uh, "Find someone to drive the car." And so I found Chuck Parsons, and Chuck and I were friends from racing activities because he he drove for Carl Haas, okay, and um, so Chuck drove the. The McLaren at uh, the M8F at uh, at Laguna Seca, and then again at, at uh, Riverside a week later, and and uh, so that was good. Then we, so then we we we, go, we got back to Toronto and talked to Roger, and it was time to fold. He, he wouldn't be able to, to carry on, so we folded the team, and everything was sold, and then I got a call from. Roger saying, uh, I talked to my brother and, and we want you to come out uh, for an interview. 
uh, because we think that, this, that, that the knowledge that you have about mechanical things will be an asset to our company now. So the next thing you know, I'm working for Trimac Transportation and I've got 1,500 tractors and 4,500 trailers to look after and something like 150 locations in North America. So anyway, so that worked out well. So the, now that's where we did set a budget. So that, that so, so that's when I had now, I was now back to my professional career, which is where I essentially started many, many years ago. Right. So I'm back now earning a living. Because okay? you don't make very much money in racing when you're, and I knew that, but it was a fun life. So, so, so that's how, and because the way it was explained to the company, if what Paul does is good enough for Formula One, then it's good enough for us. Right. So that's how it got sold. So there wasn't, so, uh, we I met. Guess, I guess we glossed over that. What was the Formula One effort? <laughs> An interesting word you, you, you used. Effort, yeah. And e, uh. I was alongside Epi when he raced the Lotus. Okay. And I was not a big fan of Colin Chapman's at any point in time, but that's another story. Um, at a point in time, I'm back in I'm back in normal business. I'm a, now a suitor, okay. And I'm anyway. I got a call from Ford. Uh, Chuck wants to run a Formula One car. Labatt's is willing to support it, but. Chuck will only do it if you're involved. So anyway, I took I don't know, three weeks off work and went and went to the airport and picked up a car that had been rented from Bernie Ecclestone. Now I knew Bernie from Formula One days, okay. Anyhow, we get the car to Epi's Epi's garage, and we got the body off, and so I start to jack up the back of the car from a pad underneath the transmission, and the back of the car starts to come up, but the front of the car doesn't move. I said, that's strange, so I let it down again, and I look, and I jack it up again. I said, son of a gun, the, 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 the engine is twisted in the, in the rear bulkhead. Make a long story short, I had to take everything out, and, and, and the, the rear bucket was completely gone. <laughs> and this was Ecclestone's car. And this is what he was famous for, okay. So I said, well, um, we essentially made a new rear bucket. And, and this was for the Canadian Grand Prix? Yeah. It's that red and white car. Yeah, yeah the yeah. pictures are right here. And anyhow, the the car became. Um, it was the car that that, that Ecclestone rented to everybody, and it never 
ran because if it ran, it might get hurt or it might wear out. Well, it was all worn out anyway. But if you rented it, it was as is where it is, and, 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 and if something broke, that's too bad. So that's the way. So he, he had a lot of money coming in, but very little money going out. But anyway, um, I told Bernie, the first time I met Bernie, I bought a car from him. He was operating out of his, out of a, out of his trailer beside a, uh, a little garage that was rented. You know, it's one of those inline places, and so he he had an office in a in a in a uh, small trailer with the water lines hooked up to the. Anyway, he was it was funny to meet him there. Anyhow, uh, I told him all we've done the we we made a new rear bulkhead for you, and uh, now you now we got an engine problem, and so he said I'll send you another engine. So um, he did. Uh, but what the problem was is that that car, he, uh, the, the transmission wasn't very good, and there were no parts for it because it was a it was a bastard transmission, and he didn't have parts for it. So that's what happened to the car. It it it, it broke the transmission, and we didn't go anywhere with it. But Ford got everything they want wanted out of it. Why? Because we put on a good front with the with the car, and it was at one stage of the game. It was the best-looking Formula One car of the year. That's the designation it got. Okay. And do you remember the red and white car? I know. I know which car you're talking. Yeah, about. and they even made they even made a model out of it. Yeah. Okay. So it was. Uh, so that was that was good. It was it was fun to be part of that. Yeah. So that so that was that. So that's that was the last competitive thing that I that I had right right so then then fast forward to again to I want to jump to that you know you're being involved in the sanctioning body stuff the safety stuff you know every open wheel race in Canada you're attending and and, and there and running and and, and how did that transition happen um, well it was uh, because I was I would usually for the for the events that I went to, I would usually tie it to some training session to a, one of the, the Trimac regions or something like that, and and then I would I would I would get I would get a whole bunch of people to come to the race, okay, and, sh get, and have them looked after, okay, and and so that made it all doable. Because no, you know, there's 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 no loser in a pillow fight. So um, it was it was just everybody enjoyed that, and it was all good talk. And then then uh, when one of the divisions of the company was being offered for sale, I said, "Well, I'll bring the guy. I'll introduce him to Roger Penske." And uh, so I took him and introduced him to Roger Penske, and eventually sold that company to Roger. But. Um, There were just the moral of the story is uh, do it do, do, do it right and do it once and avoid pissing people off and uh, don't take off more than you can chew and 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 just 
just get the job done. And um, by the way, one of the reasons I ended up driving the Mustang was we couldn't trust anybody to win with it because there were a lot of people who could drive it on Sunday, but they couldn't win with it. So you, in, in your career as a driver, you've seen, I'm sure, situations where you had a beautiful car with a not so beautiful driver. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, they tend to work cars out pretty quickly. Uh, so, so you know, you, you kind of watch all that stuff and, and, and keep, keep everything clean and present everything forward and just uh, make it as enjoyable as possible and, 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 and uh, it works. And uh, being part of uh, the administration of motorsport was an extension of having been a professional in that, in, in that industry. And uh, if you look today, at the motorsport industry in Canada, and you do an economic appraisal of it, it is a huge industry. Motorsport is a huge, huge industry. And, um, um, and the industry is never recognized by the government of Canada. As far as the government is concerned, it doesn't exist. Even though, even though the politicians are the first ones to be there to get a ride around the racetrack. In Montreal, as a clerk of the course, I had always had, you know, the special cars, you know, whatever they were. As a clerk of the course, you get... Gilles Villeneuve track, the F1 track, yeah. greatest whatever's going on yep. so I would also take people around the racetrack and and the premier of Canada for example whatever policy you have to get clearance to do that and a couple of funny things we had uh, uh, in Montreal we had uh, Trying to remember the premier, Jean Chrétien, was the prime minister. Prime minister. Yeah. And uh, Barassa was there as well. So where I was charged with taking these people around the racetrack. So I'm sitting in the car with uh, I'm sitting in the car with Chrétien because it was, we were waiting for something to go out on the racetrack and so I said to him I said uh, well good afternoon I'm Paul from oh I'm Paul from Oakville and he said well, I'm Jean from from uh, wherever he was in Quebec and so we sat and chatted for a while and he said uh, he said uh, when we go out he said is there any possibility that the car behind us cannot pass us <laughs> Because here, of course, is Barassa is not a big fan of of Christian at the time, so I made sure that he didn't do that. But in, in the course of doing that, 
at the end of the third lap, we were only supposed to do two, at the end of the third lap, uh, came into the pit and the brakes were on fire. And um, I managed to get it woed coming down the, the fast, fast lane um, to the point where I stopped and I had told them the brakes were on fire, so I'll go down. I'll go down to the end and get away from everything, and but make sure make sure we got some firepower down there. And he said, "Well, we've got two of you now." <laughs> For us, this car was on fire as well. So, so, so anyway, so there's all, you know, there's all kinds of things happen when you're involved, and and uh, and uh, fortunately, most of them are positive. Yeah, because I. I my first introduction to you was you were what what was the title of ASN FIA Canada in, in karting you were at every single run karting director yeah, yeah 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 and and that was you know you were done being a how did you put it a, a, a suitor and now you're back into racing yeah. simply for the love of it and you're at every single go-kart race, every major Canadian national championship, every major event. And I guess you were kind of where the buck stopped for enforcement, right? For the FIA? Sometimes, yeah. It depends on what the issue would be. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah, sometimes. And most of that... There were a lot of things like, um, can you do this or can you not do this and can you run this class or not run this class? And you, you have the promoters are always, there's always someone wanting to be a promoter that wants to do something that no one has done before because it does, but it doesn't suit Canada. Mm. Like there's all kinds of classes of cars that you could, you could run that were, People that I remember the old Indy car. The old Indy car spec cars were brought by were bought by someone in Toronto, and so he bought twelve old spec Indy cars and wanted to run them at, in a series. And we said no, you 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 can't because you you can't take anybody. And stick them in a in in, in in a in a 500 horsepower car that weighs 2,000 pounds, and they won't know what to do with it. So we just you just can't unleash that, mm -hmm. and so we didn't allow, we would, didn't allow it, didn't allow it. So mm -hmm. the individual in question had to find some other customers. He had to he had to, he had to resell them, and so there were things like that that you have to, you know you have to watch out for and. And uh, but you, in that in that case, you always stay behind the scene. You don't want to be the lead. You want you want to stay behind the scene. Because uh, as a regulator, you're not actually in that business. Someone else is in that business, so right. you have to let them do what they within the within the confines of the regulations. They're so you're free to do whatever they want to do as long as it fits the regulations. So it's um it's an interesting sport. Uh, uh, there's a new ASN in place now, and uh, uh, time will tell how all that works out. Uh, it takes it takes time to become established, and no matter what you're doing. So, um, 
uh, we'll just see how that goes down the road. And and I guess another current question, the hot the hot question right now for licensing, is all these North American drivers and American drivers and even some Canadian guys there, you know, are winning IndyCar races, and maybe they could go race Formula One, but they don't have a super license. What what's your take on that? Okay. Drivers in Formula One have to have super license. If you're going to be the race director for a Formula One race, you have to have a super license as a race director. Or if you're going to be a steward in Formula One, you have to have a super license. So I was a holder of two super licenses, one for race director and one for uh, international steward. Okay. In, in order to hold that, you have to pass certain criteria. You either do or you don't. Um, and uh, some issues in terms of right of passage are worth more than others, depending on what the subject is. Anyhow, if you kind of take a look at the... There, there was a problem years ago of unqualified people uh, getting into high-powered cars because of their bank account success as opposed to their driving prowess. And uh, that was particularly evident across a lot of classes. So the the current situation has been developed over a few years, and, and I think it's pretty successful now that to be a Formula One driver, you have to have 40 points. And that's it, no matter what, you have 40 points, because now you've got some clear criteria. Now, how do you assemble those points? You can assemble them in different classes. That class has a maximum amount of points. This class has a maximum amount of points. This class has a maximum amount of points. So to get to be Formula One, you have to have 40 points. So right now, there's, uh, as we speak today, in November of 2022, there's three or four drivers that are trying to get enough points to get into Formula One because there are seats available. Uh, Herta, for example, in the colony, he, he's he's trying to get he, he if he can if he can get the if he can get the points to get his license, he's got a seat. Mm. So you're going to see more of that now, but they have to go out and earn the license, not buy it. And and I think that. If you if you look now, but I mean, I guess the pushback would be, you know, someone saying IndyCar is enough to earn a Formula One license. Would you say no? There's something different about going and racing in Europe, going and racing these tracks, going and racing Formula Two, Formula Three, whatever it be, maybe. Having done a number of. IndyCar events over my career and having done a number of Formula One events, the process of being a driver is harder in Formula One than it is in IndyCar. For example, (sighs) 
wet weather racing. Um, there's not much of that done in, in IndyCar. On an oval, none. Yeah, oval, none. So one-third of your events are run on ovals. Uh, there's not a lot of applicability of oval racing to Formula One. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I, I, I've run a car on an oval for some just out of curiosity laps, okay? And uh, I had the opportunity to do that in a in a uh, Formula Atlantic car. Um, it's quite different, but once once you get settled in the groove of a form of, of, of an oval, you just you just keep kind of doing that. Um, it it the the difficulty in an oval comes with speed the faster you go the harder it gets so uh, nothing to take away from anybody driving a an Indy car imagine driving an Indy car around Indianapolis at you know 224 miles an hour averages like, any, like, like driving 224 miles an hour period in a straight line is pretty interesting. Um, I was at Indy when Danny Sullivan did his spin and win. It's one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen in my life. And, 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 but, but then we've also seen the ultimate penalty being paid with people in 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 in, uh, in ovals when they lose control, mm-hmm. so um, dangerous, yes, and that's where the excitement comes. Um, I think that 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 uh, each class of racing has its own characteristics. Um, I don't know whether it's easier to drive a Formula One car or whether it's easier to drive a, an Indy car mm-hmm. just on the basis of the car itself. Sure. Um, I, I, I don't know that. And um, in fact, the only people, there aren't very many people would know that of uh, uh, Fernando Alonso, um, he would know that because he's done both. But who else? Mm-hmm. There's just a few drivers have done the guys, yeah. A few of them have done Indy 500, but um, uh, Alonso seemed to settle into the Indy 500 pretty quickly. But if you, if you remember Villeneuve and the issues he had with ovals, mm-hmm. of which he had a number. But he managed. He got through all that and became became world champion. And he be won the, he you know he became an indie champion, became a world champion. So, so there's a. It just depends on on the skill levels. But mm-hmm. uh, Formula One cars, if you look at, they used to scare me until they put the aero stuff on the cockpit, mm. and that's now. It's just 
so much so much better now to to, to, to see those incidents happen. Yeah. And to see the driver now. A prime example is looking at that Grosjean crash. Yes. Yes. And and now of course the the halo is going to go through another development in the next two years, and it'll become even better. Mm. Um, IRL have, have have the halo, and and, and they, but they also have a um, they also have a screw windscreen on it. Yeah. I, I don't know how good that is, in terms of it can get dirty, yeah. and and uh, maybe maybe the maybe the tear off is the way to go with that and. Although I think we're going to see the tariffs in Formula One become a problem. There's so it's many of them, so many of them are sucked in. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now they're going to have to put them into a container that's inside the car, which they used to do a few years ago. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. You couldn't, you, you, you could take, you could take the, the tear-off, had to go in, they had a container in the car, had to go in there. That's kind of funny. So you started out with 20. I mean, it's amazing how many, of the, how many, I don't know how they see through them. Well, we learned on the dirt this year. Oh, did you? you get a, tell, tell me. You gotta, well, you got to get better at it. I mean, not so much in the Pinties cars. So we did the the first Pinties race on dirt at Oshwigan. And it was fine because we had the windshield. But um, actually, my first ever dirt race, I was 15 and got all these tear-offs on. And go out there for the first lap and it's like riding a buck in Bronco. It's like nothing I've ever done before. This isn't, this is motocross. This isn't racing a car. And, um, you know panicking and I'm dirt all over my visor and I just grab accidentally not one but all 15 of them and then after that I you know I'm wiping my visor and so I, yeah I, I find it funny that they have to gingerly take one off yeah. fold it up put it in a disposable yeah. bin yeah 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 and then yeah and that's what they do with sharps in the medical community right, but, right. so it's it's so it's a uh, you know these things are improving and uh uh, I just, I think, I can't get over, I can't get over the Wickens accident. I just play that one back, and, and I just can't get rid of it in my mind. And uh, that 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 was just frightening, so frightening. That uh, that was that was a, a safety device put in there to protect. Uh, crowd but it didn't do much for the driver and I said but I, I, I think about that a lot so we'll see well, I think we're going to see improvements down the road and, and in all those areas and then they have to improve once you know what the problem is you're yeah, you're yeah. Do, duty bound to, to respond to it yeah so but if you look at all the things in the Pinty series that have gone on over the last 10 years those those races today they're good to watch. I mean they're 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 it's 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 very exciting, really exciting, and now, like the like the ringer drivers that that uh, are not so much the ringer drivers anymore. Same thing that happened. Remember, uh, Ron Fellows made a name for himself as a ringer. Well, he was my first guest, and we we uh, we talked about that a lot. And it's, there's. That position uh, doesn't exist anymore in NASCAR. No, well, no, it doesn't. Uh, by the way, there's a, there's a man. If you ever had a chance to go fast in a car, 
That's a pretty interesting experience with Ron. He's a, I, Ron's a good friend. I, I just have so much respect for him. He's so good at what he does. Mm -hmm. uh, but so there's um, there's 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 lots of stories in in motorsport. Well, yeah, I've kept you here for almost over two hours. But you're I've kidding. Got, I've got. It's been two hours and five minutes. I better get out of here. Let me get your opinion on. And and maybe you don't want to give best Canadian race car driver of all time or guy that you've seen or maybe it's top three but you know i'm sure you've just recently mentioned a few of those names you've been around long enough to have seen quite quite a slew of guys come through two drivers that 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 stand they're absolute standouts in my mind but the way i view it would be quite different because I view it from my perspective. Sure. Someone else may not agree with me, but they, they also have a different perspective. From a standpoint of understanding competitions, having been a racer myself, having won championships, you know what that's all about. Now, um, there are two names that I will give you that are still standouts in Canadian racing history. One is Ron Fellows and the other is Epi Weeses. Mm. Those are two people that it doesn't matter what you give them to drive. Mm. They won't mess it up. And the ability to not mess up is an extraordinary ability to have. And those two, there's a lot of drivers drive fast, but a lot of them mess up. But, 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 Epi in his day, uh, when he was going strong and he was Trans Am champion, you'd have to go back and you'd have to characterize what being a Trans Am champion meant in those days. Uh, with Ron, um, Winning the Daytona 24 outright in a in in a road car, if you will, uh, an extraordinary accomplishment. And they, Epi and and Ron, shared two things. And maybe others can do it, but but Ron and Epi were capable of of, of telling you the most intimate things about driving fast that that's so interesting to listen to mm. like like can you imagine 200 miles an hour in the Mosaic straight when it's raining and 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 some you know ask Ron what goes through his mind someday but when you do that and um uh, Epi, 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 Epi was, Epi never talked about racing at all. He was a very quiet man. He wouldn't talk about it, but, uh, he had the same, he had the same qualities as a driver. He could drive anything. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at how successful Ron was, you look how successful Epi is over 20 year periods. Um, we won't get into, uh, Some drivers who are reputed to be Canadian drivers, but really aren't Canadian drivers. Mm. They're European drivers. Sure. So, so I mean, 
don't know enough about them. But uh, uh, anyhow, for example, uh, I'll ask you, is Lance Stroll a Canadian driver? As one who's done a lot on your show? Yeah, yeah, he was on the show. I mean, I, uh, you know, he, he was he born in Canada? I don't, but he's got, he's got a, he's born in Montreal. I mean, he's got, you know, he doesn't live here. He's got multiple passports. Um, I would, I would say he is though, because I mean, you know, you look at anyone's family and you don't have to look back more than usually one or two generations and they're European. Anyone here or, or, you know, they're immigrants, you know, almost any, every Canadian is an immigrant to some degree. Oh, yeah, I see what you're getting at. I, yeah, yeah, okay, I get So, I don't know. I, uh, you know, I, w- I would classify him. He, he has the Canadian flag uh, flying next to his name in Formula One, so. I'll give that to you, except, except that um, Lance didn't drive very much in Canada. Right. Or North America, for that matter. Sure, and I, I understand that perspective yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah, uh, he's a he's a good man. I've known him since he was yeah. that high. Okay, and 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 uh, uh, that's uh, just I'm I'm pleased. I think right now Lance is a journeyman driver in Formula One, mm. and I think he's I think he's turning into a really really reliable driver. But mm. think about it for a minute. If someone says that you're, they think you're a reliable driver and you're going 225 kilometers an hour, uh, lap after lap after lap, you got to have something going for you. There isn't a Formula One driver that I don't respect. I don't care where. I completely agree. Completely. I respect every one of them for what they do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I look at it, you know, Lance is still very young, and I think... Uh, com- you know, despite the tre- the current trend of everyone in every sport getting younger, I still think that you probably peak in racing after thirty or around thirty years old. I just think you you become more mature. You've got more races under your belt. Uh, you haven't lost the edge mentally, certainly at that age. So, I, yeah, I, I agree with your statement there. The the, uh, the 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 I enjoy watching Lance. He's 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 picked up so much, and uh, I guess uh, I, I guess now my curiosity, as we sit here, is uh, is is watching Alonso go to uh, Aston Martin and and see. I think he's going to add a lot to the team. I I really do. Uh, I'm not sad to see Schumacher leave because I think I think he was getting in the way of himself and getting in the way of others. Mm. And there's two or three drivers like another Gasly is another driver who thinks the track belongs to him and no one else should be on it. Uh, you know, there's 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 just uh, there's just I like to see some of these people moving around that don't and other people coming in, but and that's part of the that's part of the points thing now is people coming in. If you look at uh, if if you look at the next drivers coming into Formula One, um, uh, coming out of Formula Two, uh, Dragovic is uh, boy that guy is good. That guy is so good. 
So I think we're going to see some really good talent. Um, I don't know what what what, what I don't I, I I don't know what Latifi's going to do if anything, but uh, uh, when you've had so many years of of, of traveling the world and uh, you know just being in the highlight and uh, all the time, I don't know what you do after that. But mm-hmm. but we'll I guess we'll see. John. Well, he'll be a good race car driver if he continues on anywhere else he goes. Oh, exactly, exactly, exactly. So that's good. Well, Paul, I appreciate you sitting down and taking the time. Well, I appreciate you asking, and and, and uh, uh, the problem is when you get to be my age, you you got so many stories that are all cooped up. You can pick on any 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 one of them at any point in time. But, uh, anyhow, so that's good, um, and hopefully we'll do this again in another 10 years. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> do, you any, do you have any parting words or any parting advice for, whether it be race car drivers or anyone who just loves motorsports and wants to be around the track, and, and whether it be just volunteering or, or to really make a living at it? Okay, the motorsport industry, from a technical point of view, is a complex industry, and there's a there's a university in England that people have gone to that teaches you the the, the technical side of things. Um, I think they still do it. I'm not sure. But now, to be successful in motorsport, you need to be successful in anything computer-related. Mm. Uh, it doesn't matter what it is, what area you go to. You, you know, if you look at, if you look today at Formula One, they know they know the temperature of the uh, of the tires throughout the whole race. Right. And, and it isn't that long ago that we used to check the temperature of tires once after you're off the track, which to me was always useless. But um, uh, now they now they now it's real live. But so if you look at if you look now for it, go to the go to the highest level of motorsport and and, and bring it down. Today, manufacturers want their people to be in things like Formula One because it teaches them very very quickly about things uh, and it bypasses uh, the, the learning curve exponentially because now they go into they, go, they get into formula one as a, as a technical person you need to you need to you need to think what's the problem right now and what's the answer right now and can we can we install the answer well maybe not until the next event but but if, if 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 you look now at, at a lot of forms of racing, they have two two crews, one one at the racetrack and then one at the so-called the back at the factory. There's a whole other set of technicians are 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 are, are, are monitoring what's going on at the racetrack. Well, that whole area of uh, of if you look at if you look at the computer side, how do they do that? Like how how do you how do you run a how do you run a how do you run a race team from you know twelve thousand kilometers away? 
that's a, that's a fascinating field. So I think someone getting into getting into getting into motorsport. What do you what do you want to do? You want to drive? Well, uh, if you want to drive, then you have to go out and pick something that you can you 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 can you can do. Um, get into uh, in Canada. There's not much to choose from. There isn't much racing in Canada. Uh, single seater tends to be thirty-year-old cars. Uh, that doesn't work too much. Um, uh, touring cars. Uh, again, you have to have a you have to have a computer degree to, to know what 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 to do. So I would say anybody that wants to get into it on the technical side, you have to have some specialty. And 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 um, what do tire temperatures mean? Um, the book on the, the the support books that are given, and I've seen them for that English university are are, are really. I mean, they're really talk about school books. Oof, they they got everything in them, but it's hard to understand. You have to have a, a university degree to understand that book, but. Um, I know people who have gone to that university, they've got a degree, but they couldn't find paying positions back, back, in, back in North America. Uh, uh, it doesn't pay very well. So if you want to start a family, that's maybe not the place to be. But uh, uh, I, my advice would be to hook up on a volunteer basis to some race organization um, and find out what's available, what, who can accept your skills, sure. even, even though you're not charging them anything. Yeah. Um, and, and just start, just go out, just go out to the racetrack and start wandering around the paddock and talking to people. I think that's great advice. Um, and I remember when I was young, I used to sit and look through the fence and say, gee, I wish I could be in there. From a spectator point of view, and today as a participant, I would look through the same fence and say, gee, I wish I could be a spectator. So, <laughs> so it's, it's a, you have to learn how to build a car in order to know how to, how to, how to, how to work it. But uh, just go to the racetrack and 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 that because that's where it happens. It doesn't happen any other place. Oh well, wait, wait a minute. You got esports. Sure, sure. We'll leave that discussion for another day, though. Yes, yes. That's oh, okay. a whole. That's a whole thank other day. Okay, on. okay. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Take Thanks. care.